I go through periods of time where I feel very uh, de- detached from the podcast. In any case, hey, CNFers, this episode is sponsored by Liquid IV. And I got to say, it's a delicious way to rehydrate, fuel those endurance activities, or if you just want to zhuzh up your water. It's some tasty stuff. Been a big fan of lemon lime. Non-GMO, free from gluten, dairy, and soy. There's also a sugar-free version, uh, the white peach. Oh, so nice. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the promo code CNF at checkout. And your burly vegan here, he only gets paid if you buy stuff. It's an affiliate sponsorship. They're not paying me to read this. I get paid if you buy stuff. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using the promo code CNF at liquidiv.com. Come, come. This episode is also sponsored by the word dread. To fear greatly, be in extreme apprehension of. When the 3 a.m. voice wakes you up, you face each and every day with a pervasive sense of dread where relief will only come when you go to bed 16 hours from now. If I go three days without writing, I feel fucked up and, you know, depressed and a little cranky. Well, you're probably a writer. Oh, hey, CNFers, it's CNF Pod, the creative nonfiction podcast, the show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. Oh, great. Uh, now in paperback, perhaps my favorite interview in the entire run of the podcast, and that's saying something. It's one I reference all the time and point people to. It's Andre the Third, author of the memoir Townie, the novel The House of Sand and Fog, and most recently, the novel Such Kindness. He also has an essay in The New Yorker that came out in June around the time the novel released uh, called The Lows of the High Life. It's about him finally being flush with money, but the, the struggle that comes with growing up poor, having a very conflicted relationship with money and all. I know that's something I wrestle with. Not that I'm wealthy, like I still do food shopping with a calculator in hand. And not that I grew up poor, but I grew up feeling poor. Because my dad was mercilessly cheap, and my mom, like, if she ever bought me anything, she would tell me, she pulled me aside before we go in the house, she'd be like, if your father asks, we got it on sale, okay? Anyway, point being, it's a great essay. That came out earlier this year. If you head over to brendanamera.com, hey, you can read show notes and sign up for my Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. It's a curated list. I know everyone has a curated list. An essay by your resident crank, that's me. Book recommendations. Stuff to make you happy. It goes up to 11, literally. The list is 11 items long. First of the month, no spam, can't beat it. You might also consider heading to patreon.com. Sure. I'm asking for a little bit of dough, but what you get is more than the satisfaction of helping the podcast, though that is its own currency, right? You get access to the community of other CNF and writers. Like, lately I've been starting these threads with a little video, and you talk amongst yourself. Sometimes I jump in, don't lurk, jump in and contribute to the conversation. Maybe exchange contact info. Make a friend. Patreon.com slash CNFpod. And, uh, of course, there are free ways to support the show or leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts or ratings on Spotify. And one final thing, shout out to Athletic Brewing, my favorite non-alcoholic beer out there. Not a paid plug, but I'm a brand ambassador and I love celebrating Athletic Brewing. If you head to athleticbrewing.com and use the promo code BRENDAN020 at checkout, you get a nice little discount on your first order. I don't get any money and they're not an official sponsor of the podcast. I just get points towards swag and beer. 
Give it a shot. I'm about to order some more because I love it. The Free Wave. Hazy IPA is my favorite. No parting shot this week since it's a paperback edition. Uh, so get out a pen and pad and have a listen to Andre. It is so, so good. And my, always my apprehension, like going back to these paperback editions or going rehashing interviews from the backlog is like, oh boy, uh, how does how is the audio? The audio isn't as good typically, but this one's pretty good. Uh, Andre is something of a, of a Luddite with tech. So I think this was like on the phone like the Skype phone call at the time. This episode, this one is from 2017. And then I'm always worried, like, ah, is a, are my chops as an interviewer, like, were they okay back then? Or have I lost my fastball now? And I can, I can, I can say this was really well executed. And I'm pretty proud of it to this day. Uh, something like six years later, kind of crazy. So, to give you some context for the start of this, Andre had judged a memoir contest for the literary journal River Teeth, so that's kind of where we jump off. Let's not waste any more time. Pure fire. Cue the pyro. Riff. What was uh, sort of the pulse of memoir that you got to read through judging that contest? That's a great question. Uh, you know, I've done that, I think, a couple of times. And, well, sure, first let me back up, give you a little more context. Sure. So, you know, before I wrote my own accidental memoir, Townie, I had not actually read a lot of memoirs. I did read, uh, thank you, Doc, I did read uh, This Boy's Life by Tobias Wolf, and uh, years ago. And that was sort of a, an artistic model for me. What I'm getting at is um, a lot of people are writing really well about their lives. You know, there's a lot. Now, look, I, I got some of the finalists and some of the The, the takeaway is it, it's hard to write a memoir. <laughs> look, all writing is hard in all ways at all times, which is what I think writers love about it. Um, I, I found that once again, that the, the, uh, the task seems to be to write honestly and fairly, but also, uh, you walk in that fine line between self-aggrandizement and self-pity. And, uh, you know, it's, it's gotta be an honest book. Uh, and that's hard to do if here's, here's, I'm I'm not being articulate here. I have found that once again, the best books seem to be the ones where the writer had, had command of his or her material emotionally. In other words, there'd been enough distance between, the thing being written about and the thing that had happened. And those that seem to be too close to the events they're writing about tended to fall into the self-aggrandizement and or self-pity traps, which mm-hmm. are understandable. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm above it, but I'm saying that that's one of my central sort of observations. Right, and that's you know something you, you were certainly able to accomplish with Townie because you did have, you did have, you know, you know, 30 years removed from so much of the the narrative of, of that book. So, yeah, like, and maybe, like, speak to that a little more, just that importance of of distance so you can process it with uh, a clearer set of glasses. Mm-hmm. And I really like what you just said, a clearer set of glasses that comes with time. Yeah, 
you know, I teach undergraduates at UMass, and, and um, I talk to a lot of college students around the country all year long, and, and I'm always amazed when I, when I meet a 20, 21-year-old human being who's writing a memoir or, you know, a bunch of personal essays, and, you know, they, it's not their fault. They're only, you know, 18 months, three years, five years removed from what they're writing about. And I tell them, you know, I had to get 30, 40 years down the road. Uh, so much of what is in Townie, uh, I try to write as fiction three separate times over about 28 years of my writing life. Huh. Probably for a total of maybe eight or nine writing years, I try to write so much so much of what's in there as, as a novel. And it just, and it finally came as nonfiction, and it came from an essay I was writing about my sons in baseball. And the question fueling the essay was, how come I didn't play baseball? I love baseball now, but I got into it when my kids got into it. I'm 40 years old. How did this happen? So um, that's that's what began. But you're right. Uh, it, it, it took 30-something years before I could actually go back to those uh, wounds of my childhood and really write about them honestly and fairly and clearly. And what was that experience like watching your sons play ball and what were the thoughts going through your head as you were watching them play and then as you were looking to process that to to write about well, it as know, an essay well so much of it was are you a dad yet no i highly recommend it if it's in the cards for you guys there's nothing better there's just nothing better and the primary feeling one of joy you know it's you just it's just so joyous to watch these creatures that came out of you and your partner and having their lives of their own and so the feelings were it was interesting, mainly fatherly, a sense of wanting them to have a safe and, uh, you know, positive experience with youth sports and all that. But there's also a little boy in me. You know, I, I do believe, and this is not an original thought, of course, that, you know, we're all like the skins of an onion. Like, I'm 57 years old, but, you know, my 14-year-old self is talking to you right now. Your 20-year-old self is talking to me. We're all, it seems to me that all parts of us are here at all times, and we can't get away from it, which is kind of beautiful. And so, yeah, there's a part of the, the little boy in me who, who, you know, I move two or three times a year for cheaper rent. We're always the new kid in schools, and we got picked on. You know, you know, I, I avoided sports because I didn't know anything about them. I got teased. And so it brought back the, the rejected, exiled little boy I'd been. But the, the irony is it turns out I was a pretty athletic kid, but I became a solo athlete as a, you know, weightlifter, runner, boxer kind of guy. But... All of that was there. There was the little boy in me uh, wish, wishing I played, but mainly the father in me, proud and happy to see my boys taking part, you know, and, and using their bodies and, and not being afraid of what people said to them. Mm. And, um, you know, you wrote this great essay, The Descent, in the latest issue of, uh, of River Teeth, and, um, and I, I wonder, like, how, how can a writer make that descent into the dream world as you as you write about in in nonfiction like someone can in fiction you know how, how I'm, so glad, I'm so i'm so glad you asked so look as you probably know the opposite of the word to remember is not forget it's dismember it's chop 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 you know and so when we're remembering we're literally putting the pieces back together again i mean look at what a therapist does i've read <laughs> I've been there. What do they do? They say, "Okay, where were you sitting?" Well, I was in the, I was in the kitchen. Well, well, was he still in his winter coat? Yeah. And was it still snowing out? Yeah, it was really coming down. You know, they're, they're real. The questions are all leading you to put the, the the images together 
just tell the story again. And and I think that's what we do in memoir. Now, I do believe that people make – and, well, by the way, this is also another central thing I took away from, from grading uh, – not grading, uh, judging the, the River Teeth contest, memoir contest, is that um, too often you feel that, that, that the writer knows too much about what he or she is – hoping and trying to say with their memoir. And my view is, well, just because you were there doesn't mean you know what the hell happened. You know, we all know that when we were 16 years old, our dad left our mother and, you know, he did some time. You know, we all know what that, you know, I'm making this up, but mm-hmm. but just because we know what happens, what the hell happened, right? So it seems to me that if, that if journalism is about information, art, the kind that we do, is about experience. You know, journalism is about recording. What we do is about capturing. You know, journalism is about the facts. Ours is about the truth. And so I, I think that, you know, a guy who mainly writes fiction, but I, I will write personal essays now and then, and I've written that memoir, I feel the same fuel at work, which is curiosity. And I think that is the main challenge, is you must be curious about what happened to you. Just because you were there doesn't mean you know what the hell happened. And I would submit to you that's really why you're writing this memoir. Because you have to go back, because what the fuck happened? Right. You right. Know? Yeah, so you have to kind of be... You have to go back into the wreck, which is actually from a great Andrew Rich poem, right? Yeah. You have to go back into the wreck. Yeah, and you're an incredible repository of, of quotes from from great writers. Like... I, I'm always I'm always impressed. You seem to be able to recall them just at the snap of a finger. And I'm like, do you is that something you record and you know you, you play over in no. your head and and uh, how do you you know you've got those like right in your holster? It seems so. It's like no, a, you know, it's funny. People say I have like a weird savant quality about it. The truth <laughs> is, I have a weird memory. Like Brendan, buddy, I, I could watch a movie tonight by Labor Day. New movie for me. <laughs> I won't remember anything, <laughs> but I do retain. Uh, lyrics and quotes and lines. I, it's it's just the nature of my memory. I, I retain um, words that I love that are helpful to me, and they just I, no. I don't I don't I don't memorize them. I have tried to memorize a poem or two, but that's all. So, so. I, but it's funny. My, my my wife says, "Oh, honey, you have no wisdom of your own. It's just like a rolodex of other people's wisdoms." <laughs> I said, "Well, I, I call that attribution." <laughs> So I, one of the one of the great things that uh, in the acknowledgments that you that you wrote in in Townie is uh, I think you were crediting your editor or thanking your editor about helping to find the true book within the one you'd first written. Uh, what was that process like? Trying to uh, keep going deeper and deeper to find well, that true you know, book. Let me, I'm glad you asked about that because it, you know I feel so fortunate to have her as an editor. Actually, today. After we get off, after, after I get off with you, I'm sending my new novel to her, like Great. today. Oh, congratulations! That's awesome. Well, thank you, man. She's a toughie, and she's very smart and she's very rigorous. A really good editor will help you do that. And you know, he or she is not looking to help you write a more commercial book. Uh, they are actually looking at what it is you've wrought and helping you write it even more fully in, in a truer way. So here's the thing. When I first, the first drafts, I left out all my family. I left them out. I didn't want to shine a light on their privacy. I didn't know where the line was. And she said the funniest thing. So I sent her all this violent stuff, which I was happy to write about because I've been trying to write about street violence for years. I didn't know how to do it um, without sounding dangerous and 
strange and I found they, and, and again it, the truth right mm-hmm. how, how did I find my way into the violence through the scared little boy who didn't know anything about sports who moved with his single mother and siblings to tough towns and, and that was the way in um, and the more honest way in the more vulnerable way in and so the first drafts I, you know I had all the street violence she said well didn't you live with people (laughs) yeah well isn't that part of your story too i said yeah but i don't i don't i don't want to i don't want to violate their privacy so a little while later um i I saw the uh writer richard russo he's he's, he's a good buddy and we were at this literary thing and and this is before he'd written his own memoir elsewhere and and I told him, I said, I know my editor is right. I just don't know where the line is between me and my, my family's experience. And he said, the, he said the most hope, helpful thing I've heard about this. He said, well, if it, if it were me, I, I'd ask myself, am I trying to hurt anyone with this book? Am I trying to settle any scores? And if the answer is yes, I wouldn't write it. Uh, or I'd write it, but I wouldn't publish it. If the answer is no, I'd just go ahead and write it. And the truth is, as soon as he said that, Brendan, I, I, I could feel that I was no longer, again, I was turning 50 at the time. I could feel I was no longer angry at my father or my mother. I didn't even feel sorry for the boy I'd been or the childhood I'd had. They're a lot worse everywhere at all times. I just felt artistically compelled to try to capture what it was like to be in this dead mill town in the early 70s, Vietnam limping to a finish. We're all doing drugs and alcohol. We've got hair to our waist, and there are no men around, and there's all this dysfunction and violence. And it was, it was, it was the world that shaped me. And I finally just felt I found a way in. And, um, and then my strategy was, okay, I'm going to let my, I'm going to shine a light on my family, but only when their experience intersects my own. So for example, my brother was sexually abused, you know, daily by this grown woman for six years from 13 to 19. She was just, he was like a kept boy. Mm. And, um, you know, so if I'm walking by my 14 year old brother's bedroom at four o'clock on a Thursday afternoon, and I hear the moaning of a, you know a grown woman having sex on the other side. I'm not going to go on the other side of that door because that's his memoir, that's his story to tell. But you know what? In the hallway, the moans are part of mine, and and that became my strategy. And and then it got it got it got better. It became a much more honest and symphonically rich story to tell. And and it was my editor who was tough on it. She wouldn't let up. Said no. This is and, and here's the thing, man. And and you know, I, I I talk about this almost too much, but the central thing about writing I find most joyous is that it's an act of discovery. It's not a it's not an act of exposition, which as you know means to show. Mm-hmm. You know, showing all the smart things you've learned. Who cares about the writer? It's not an act of exposition. It's an act of discovery. I love that line from the late, great short story writer Grace Paley. We write what we don't know we know. The truth is, all those years, for years, I thought I'd become a far more effective street fighter than I should have been because, you know, I'm not a tough guy. I'm not a big guy. I'm, I mean, I'm physically strong. I'm in shape. But, I'm, you know, there, there are tougher guys within a one-mile radius of wherever I am at all times. I just, I was so insanely, uh, toxically full of self-hatred i would rather die a violent death than see a coward in the mirror anymore Mm. and that made me very dangerous for about a decade but all those years brendan i thought until i wrote townie this accidental memoir that rose from an essay i i thought well i got dangerous because uh, i learned how to channel i learned how to box and i learned how to fight and i i learned how to you know do all that and it was the it was the rage of the bullied boy 
No, wrong. What writing townie taught me, um, and again, and this is this is what I, I try to teach in memoir writing classes and when I talk about creative writing nonfiction to writing students, is you must be as cu- authentically curious about your own experience as you are as if you're writing a novel. And what I learned going back, putting the pieces back together, my own story, once I stepped back into the rack from the Adrian Rich poem, what did I discover? Oh, yeah, well, and, one, and once I let in with the editor's note, I let in that my brother was being sexually abused on a daily basis for six years. He tried to kill himself like 10 times before his late 20s. I left that out. I left out that my mother was so depressed. She was, you know, she worked 14 hours a day. She'd come home. She'd lie on the floor in her work clothes, fall asleep. She felt like an older sister. She had no friends. Her family was 2,000 miles away. Nobody. She was isolated. I left that out. I left out that my sister was raped and was selling drugs. I left out my other sister was so depressed and isolated and she put a padlock on her bedroom door because the house was full of degenerates. And when we came home from school, drug dealers, my sister knew. I left that out. I left it all out. And then I put it back in. And then I, and I kept digging and found more. And here's the thing. I, that's what I was putting into my fists. All of that. Mm. All of that. You know? And so... It, it's it's what I love about, you know, I'm working on a collection of essays right now that I hope to deliver to my publisher before the year's over. I've, I've You know, I've published like 30 of them already over the years. And uh, I love it about the essay. You know, it just, you know, as you know, it comes from Montaigne, from, comes from the French, SAA, to attempt or to try. I, you know, I, 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 I love that form that, you know, in the same way that poetry captures things that need poetry to capture them. You know, the way the light hits the side of your mother's face on that porch. You know, you don't need a novel. You just need, I just need a moment. Mm. I need this poem. The essay does the same, you know. What was it like? What was it like to be in that afternoon when blah, 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 you know? It's a beautiful thing. And, you know, you had said that you had experimented a lot with trying to take a lot of what became Townie and write a lot of false starts in fiction and then it finally coalesced in mm. the nonfiction account so why do you think there were so many false starts in fiction well, and yeah and then it ultimately became a nonfiction account I, I i think there are at least two or three different kinds of writers if not a lot more than that but <laughs> you know there are those who tend to be more auditory you know i think faulkner had to hear those sentences in his head you know, uh, you know, you, you could say Hemingway was more painterly and very imagistic. In fact, he would study landscapes at the Louvre to learn how to write landscapes. You know, John Irving said there are at least two kind of novelists, kinds of novelists. There are those who are sort of tragic and somber in tone and those who are more comic. And he put himself in, you know, Charles Dickens in the more comic vein, as would be Mark Twain, et cetera. So then what am I saying? Um, and then there are those, this is my little theory, there are those writers who can who can write derivatively from their life experience and make beautiful fiction out of it. Mm. Lincoln Capote could have a bad cocktail party in Manhattan and write a beautiful short story about a bad cocktail party in Manhattan. <laughs> My own father, the great short story master Andre Debuse, so much of his writing was derivative. I mean, I could I could point out, oh well, that's his ex-wife from his second marriage. Oh, that's me. Oh, that's you know my sister. You know, um, Tim O'Brien writes beautifully from experiences he's had directly. Uh, but then there are those of us who seem to do a lot better when we go far afield. And I finally learned, after many years of trying and failing, 
that I tend to do better as a fiction writer when I when I really step into the private skin of someone I'll never be like a like a, a female stripper in a Florida club or like a Saudi Arabian or like an Iranian or like mm-hmm. a little girl. I do better when I'm not writing close to home, at least in terms of factual experience. That's my answer is is I do a lot better when it's not remotely tied to anything I've experienced. But here's the thing, man. But then <laughs> I love what uh, Dr. Rose said. You know, Sarah Orne Jewett, as you know, is the one who said, you know, write what you know. Dr. Rose said, yeah, but how do you know what you know? Hmm. <laughs> and so Dr. said, yeah, but how do you know what you know? You know, my first published story was from the point of view of, a, of an inmate um, out on a date with a woman for the first time in seven years because he was in the joint for seven years. And I got letters from inmates. You know, it was in Playboy magazine, so that's that's how they read it. I got letters from like a handful asking where where I'd done time or where I was doing time. And it made me feel so good because it was my first story. And I thought, well, I'm, maybe I wrote that pretty well. I think I was an inmate. Hmm. The truth is, I'd never at that point had never stepped foot inside of a state prison, but I have since, but not then. But the truth is, I knew what it was like to be a new kid in a schoolyard, getting ready to get beat up just because I was new. It wasn't a huge emotional stretch to imagine what it's like to be raped or stabbed in the in the prison yard. And so we still end up, what I'm getting at is, you don't have to write about your direct life experience to still end up singing your song. Mm. You're going to do it emotionally anyway, but in my case, it tends to come out a lot better when it's, you know, from the points of view of characters and situations I've never been in. What did it do for you when uh, there's this there's this great little scene in, in town and you get a knock on the door and your 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 father had called a phone booth from outside and uh, you know he got wind of your of the story you had written and he's just like you're a writer man like what what did that yeah. mean to you when you when you heard him say those words? Well, it was it was layered as hell. I'll tell you, um, <laughs> and 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 I I hope I hope I got some of these layers into the, that book. Um, on one level, it was, I, I acknowledged that I was beginning to read his work, so I was beginning to discover how good he actually was at this thing. And uh, so I took it as encouragement from a from a master to this puppy apprentice that maybe I was on the right road. You know, you know as you know, when we're in our late teens, early 20s, we're all desperate for some sign from some older, helpful person. Am I on the right path? Is this what I should be doing? You know, by the way, I take that responsibility immensely seriously with young people. And so there was that part of it, but there's also the part of uh, having not really grown up around him. You know, he left when I was 10. You know, there was, there was that part, it was just that father-son part where as the son, I was just desperate to get any sort of... Uh, appraising attention from it all not praising not praise but an appraisal Mm -hmm. you know uh i wanted i wanted to be measured by him in some way uh you know and i know it's 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 a term we throw around now but it's it's actually you know i think very accurate i just wanted to be seen by my old man and that moment all those came together in uh, that one comment you're a writer man and and that just uh you know i was high on that feeling for quite a while yeah it gave me it gave me courage to keep doing it for a while yeah our artists on on any level no matter what your discipline uh, that uh, something like that a little bit of validation just puts so much fuel in the tank to just say keep going and uh yeah, and it can it can it can help you know one comment can help you for years yeah 
You yeah. know, especially once you start to get all the damn rejections, and I got a shitload, <laughs> a shitload. You know, people understandably think, well, it must have been easier if it with the same name, doors must have opened. I think they closed. Mm. You know, my first book went to, well, my first book had seven stories in it, three of which have been published in magazines or quarterlies. For those three exceptions, I had 117 rejections. You know, uh, the book went to 39 publishers over five and a half years or whatever. And, you know, I, I think people understandably thought, you know, he, like I love Hemingway. You know, if, if I if someone handed me a copy of a story by Ernest Hemingway the Third or Junior, I wouldn't even want to read it. Screw you. I got my own Hemingway. Why don't you go sell cars or something? <laughs> <laughs> and I think I got a lot of that, which, I, which is understandable. Oh, man. Um, Although it hurt my feelings for about 20 years, but that's, that's okay. Yeah. We all get a hand we're supposed to play. Yeah, and you know, I've I've read, and I think it was in, um, it was either in Townie or the Descent. It was, it was. Um, you say you like you value, you know, deep revision in uh, in that process. Yeah. And I wonder, like, how do you, you know, process that and work through ugly middles and get to the point where you are confident in a piece? Well, you know, honestly, Brendan, boy, I never get to the point where I'm confident. I get to the <laughs> point where. I, and I feel, and you know, I'm getting ready right after we talk to press send and send this new novel to my publisher in New York. And the feeling is, oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> the feeling always is, well, a better writer would have written a better book, but this is the best I can do. I have written it and rewritten it and rewritten it. And I have, you know, there's a great line from Raymond Carver. He said, you know, the kind of care I like is when the writer takes out all the commas and then puts them right back where they were again. <laughs> yeah. You know, so to answer your question, uh, what I think one of my favorite parts of the whole creative writing process, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, is revision. You know, and as we all know, it means to see again. Well, not just, gee, do I need to rewrite the sentence? Certainly line editing is important, but also, I don't know, do I need all 85 pages of this boy's memory of that year? And, and the truth is, Usually, no. Uh, you know, and too many writers, understandably, again, are loath to cut it because that was 14 months of my life. It took me 14 months to write those 85 pages. Yeah, you know what, though? But the reader only needs three of them. One of my favorite lines, and it, it's, also, it's a really harsh line, is from Blaise Pascal, who said, look, anything written to please the author is worthless. You know, mm. it's so harsh. But I do believe you must embrace that line, especially when you're revising. Just because it took you two years to write these hundred pages doesn't mean we need them in the narrative. You and and, and but it's not wasted time, right? right? That what you learn in those hundred pages are now going to fill uh, what you leave out in that whole thing that Hemingway was a master at with the iceberg and one eighth is showing, seven eighths is beneath the surface. Well, that seven eighths beneath the surface is what the writer knows but is left out. It takes great discipline, and frankly. An immense act of generosity, a word I don't think we use enough in creative writing discussions, for the reader. Not only generosity for the reader, but you know, which, is, which is counterintuitive, right? Because you're giving the reader less. But it's an act of generosity to give the reader less because you're actually trusting him or her to bring their life experience to the reading. And they can feel that they, what, what is not there, they will sense and feel and know from their own lives. And that's part of the art. And how would you describe the tenacity it takes to survive and thrive as as a writer? Well, look, man, it's different. 
different for everybody, right? You know, one of my favorite lines about this is from uh, our, our a, a wonderful American novelist who still isn't read nearly enough, Thomas Williams, won the National Book Award for his novel, The Hair of Harold Rue in 1975, a beautiful book about writing, the writing life, by the way. Have you read it? I have not. Check it out. The yeah. hair, like hair on your head. The hair of Harold Rue, R-O-U-X. There's, there, actually, I believe... Ooh, it'll, USA, it'll come to me, the publisher. Uh, Bloomsbury Books did, a, I think, a reissue of it, and I wrote the new afterward. Anyway, it's a beautiful book. Cool. Late in his life, Mr. Williams was asked, why do you write? He said, oh, that's easy. I write so I don't die before I'm dead. <laughs> Isn't that great? I think that most real writers, I'm not talking about real as in having had any publishing success, you know you're a writer if, you know, people will say, well, how do I know if I'm a writer? I said, well, can you go a year without writing and feel just fine? Yes. Well, then you're not a writer. Good. Go go do something else. Now you're free to go do something else. Hmm. Um, but, if you know, if the answer is no, I, if I go three days without writing, I feel fucked up and, you know, depressed and a little cranky. Well, you're probably a writer. But when you talk about tenacity, um, there, I do think that something has come into the culture that I think is – kind of ominous now i'm a bit of a broken record on this forgive me i hate the digital world you know i don't hate the podcast <laughs> i don't hate i don't hate google i don't hate the internet i hate the handheld device i detest the iphone i detest that human beings are walking around staring at gadgets in their hands instead of looking at each other's eyes or checking out the sunset on the side of that dumpster in that Brooklyn alley that, you know, your cab just drove by. But guess what? You missed it because you're looking at social media. Mm -hmm. Social media, Facebook, I'm not putting them down. I'm sure there's value to them. I've had nothing to do with any of it. Um, it's not because I'm a snob. Um, I don't, it seems like a time killer when you could be reading a book or talking to a loved one. I've never texted. I'm never going to text. Here's my point. When you talk, one thing that I've seen polluting the writer's life, especially young writers, the first 10 or so years of doing it, is, you know, Facebook has made everyone the curator of the museum of me. Everybody seems to be taking selfies and posting them and taking little movies of themselves. What's happened is, and of course this is not an original thought, but I don't think it's helpful for the writer. It's made us even more self-involved and narcissistic than people tend to, to be. It's made us more neurotic. It, it's, it's, and I'll tell you, that is, that is the opposite energy the writer needs. You know, what is that great line? I'm going to butcher it from Plenty Real Connor, but something like, no art is sunk in the self. Um, the one about the, the self needs to be self-forgetful in order to see the thing being seen and the thing being made. So if you want tenacity, get the fuck off social media. Mm. You know, I, you know, a, because what it's going to do is it, it's made people less patient about their own failures. It's made people um, crave instant gratification more. And and you know, I'm sorry. It, I, I think the muscles it builds are the are, well. It, that's a bad metaphor. I think it atrophies any muscle you need to be tenacious, because it's making us less patient, more self-involved. Uh, a great book can take ten years to write, maybe longer. And you must find a way to uh, do that without caring about the world ever noticing whether you write or not or if you're gifted or not. You know, um, there's a great line I love from, from a Nadine Gordimer novel, uh, A Sun Story, where one character has an insight as to what sincerity is. And she's talking to her friend, and, and we're in the character's point of view, and she thinks, oh, sincerity is never having an idea of oneself. I think that's beautiful. And the, yeah. the, the truth is, if you want to be tenacious, stop thinking 
get the word career out of your head, get the word book out of your head, get the word publisher out of your head. And don't get me wrong, I wish that on all hardworking writers that they have some kind of worldly success. But I think that too often it's in the forefront of a writer's psyche these days, and that's that's just a recipe for hamstringing your tenacity. It's too much of a, and it's hard to do this, especially in this country of of, of being um, ambitious and outcome driven versus being process driven, which I think is kind of what you're getting at too. <laughs> well, well, you just said it much, much, much more economic, economically than I did, Brendan. That was good. Yeah, what you said. <laughs> and uh, you know, you said something wonderful about yeah being patient with with failure. And um, yeah. it's something I like talking about with people is like the value of the drawer. You know, sometimes yeah. something needs to go sit in the drawer for a while, you know, and yeah. it, however long that might be. And I wonder well, maybe what your experience is with letting something that you've, you know, you've maybe rushed to write, but then you like, it didn't feel right. So you just put it away and then it came back better than ever. I would say that's, I, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say this. I think 95% of whatever I've, put out in the world writing wise are the phoenixes that rose from the ashes of what failed mm. you know i i have been writing five six days a week without fail since i was 22 that's 35 years i've only published six books where the hell have i been well i've probably written six others too but mm. no one's seen them because i had to write them there's a great line from gail Godwin: the writer must has to clear her throat before she sings <laughs> you know so much of this is, is a cooperating with what we find. And, you know, and, and if I say nothing, and I especially felt this writing uh, my memoir and when I write uh, personal essays, um, that I, it always goes deeper and better, the writing does. And it always comes out to be something I'm more proud of than ashamed of. Not when I set out trying to say something about something I experienced, et cetera, or something I know or learned. Who cares? No, it's when I've set out to find something. That is when something really special happens. And, and so, so many early drafts, back to your comment about the value of the drawer, they go in the drawer because I, 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 I was too willful. I was controlling it too much. I was trying to say something. And it was just a one-note treatment of something. I had to let go and really wait for the, for the, for the honest and authentically curious way in. Um, yeah, I, I can't. I think you're totally correct. And also, there's another thing about Americans: we're very impatient with failure. You know, mm. we 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 don't tolerate it in in ourselves or others. You know, I think we still do break our our culture down into uh, you know winners and losers. And, and look, what we did. We, we we elevated a man to the highest office in the land who breaks who literally breaks people down into winners and losers. And who are the winners? Rich white males. Yeah. And and the rest of us are losers. And he actually uses that uses those terms, winners and losers, which is toxic. But the truth is, if you want to write or create anything worth a damn, you better embrace failure, or you're not going to get to their good stuff. I always, I sometimes default to, like most men do anyway, to a sport metaphor. And, um, you know, in baseball, you're a Hall of Famer, not if you bat 300, but if you fail 70% of the time. And yeah. Yeah, and like in horse racing. Hey, that's a good sports metaphor, buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And in horse racing, uh, a, a Hall of Fame horse trainer, he's if he's winning at eighteen percent of the time, so failing eighty-two percent of the time, like he'll be a Hall of Fame horse trainer. So it's like, yeah, it's a, you, when you flip it on the other, other, you can you can embrace failure as as a means to success. 
but it's hard to get there sometimes, you know, just have the, the highlight reel to compare ourselves to. Yeah. And I think that, um, so, so then what, so what, right. What is the task before us? I think the task before each of us, people who do this creative writing thing, you gotta learn to love how hard it is. You know, for years, you know, if you read Tony, you know, that I worked really hard on trying to build a big, strong body. And, you know, I never had the genetics to get big, but mm-hmm. I've always been pretty in shape. Well, now, since I started working out in 1974, I haven't quit. So I'm a lot stronger than I look. What's my point? I was a student of the bench press because I, you know, all I wanted to do was bench press three to 500 pounds. Mm. I got close to 300, but I never got beyond it. And I never, you know, I never got heavier than about 165 pounds of body weight. My point is... I read this one uh, article by this really good bodybuilder. He said, "He said, he said when I when I started to re- get really good at, at at bench pressing, is when I began to fall in love with how scared I was lowering a heavy weight to my chest." Hmm. He said, "I began to fall in love with the fear, and I began to fall in love with that feeling of the of the pectoral muscles stretching almost to the breaking point as I lowered that heavy bar." He said, "Once I began to look forward to the fear and the physical pain." I got really better at bench pressing. <laughs> hmm. And so I do think that, well, okay, so here's another great line I love from some ancient Chinese wise person. If the mad dog comes at you, whistle for him. Huh. Right? Yeah. You know, uh, I, you know I, Dennis Lehane's an old friend, and, and I saw him once in a, give a talk, and actually to my students at UMass, and he said, you know, when I look back and I think about all the buddies I had who started writing when I did and how they, they didn't keep it up. And he said, I asked myself, well, how come I, how have I kept it up? And he said, oh, I know, fear management. Every day I manage my fear. And, you know, these are important uh, thoughts because, uh, you know, most of us have jobs that we're not afraid of. We have stress. Everyone's got stress. Um, but, you know, it's a gift to have a job that still scares you after decades of doing it as it scares me, you know, stepping into the unknown. But I've, I've learned to love that, that fear. You know, there's a, uh, have you read The Writing Life by Annie Dillard? It's on my shelf. I have not read it yet. Yeah, go, go read it this summer. It'll, you know, read, you'll read it in two hours. It, it's a lovely, slim volume, so smart. In, in one passage, she's describing Giacometti, the, uh, well, you, I, I, I talk about this in, the, in that essay you read, The Descent. Yep. And, and I love how she talks about if Giacometti had not acknowledged his bewilderment, he would not have persisted. And once again, I don't think it's something in American culture anyway, the culture I know best, that, you know, we're not, we don't tell kids to go get lost. And well, we sadly tell them to go get lost, but we don't, <laughs> we don't prize being lost. We don't prize bewilderment. You know, you're supposed to figure shit out. Well, no, don't. You know, Flannery O'Connor, there's a certain grain of stupidity the writer can hardly do without. Hmm. And that is the quality of having to stare. I think once the writer begins to embrace bewilderment uh, and the fear that goes along with it, joyously, that's when real growth happens. And that's when that tenacity that you talked about happens. And that's when the patience that is required to create something beautiful, uh, I think, kicks in. And then what becomes far more important is the daily writing. And you're not so much thinking about being an author as you are a writer. And then all, uh, over the years I've seen those who can do all that end up being authors. And uh, how have you, you know, you said you've you know, been writing four, five to six days a week you know, since you were 22. So, you know, 35 years of that. How do yeah. you, 
how did you bake that into your day and what's your routine like to ensure that you're getting those mountains of words written yeah well that's there's the rub right there brother sometimes it's not a mountain of words sometimes <laughs> it's five <laughs> yeah. 14 but it's words you know, I, I yeah i have this uh, metaphor which is probably creepy but i think that <laughs> whether you're male or female writer that you're pregnant with that that story or essay or memoir novel what have you you are pregnant with it the way a real woman is pregnant with a real child in her real womb and your, your job is just to get daily nutrients to it no matter how you feel about it you you gotta you gotta feed the baby well how do you do that you show up and you get in a session now um you know, my novel, the novel that put me on the map, House of Sand and Fog, I wrote in a park car in a graveyard not far from my house because we had three little kids in a tiny apartment. I wasn't going to tell them to be quiet so Daddy could write. So I, I wrote in my car. And um, during those years, I was working, uh, teaching at four or five campuses and as an adjunct writing professor in Boston. I was also remodeling houses as a carpenter where I made more income. I was a sole provider financially. And I had no time. I had such good excuses to never get any writing done. I was also getting four or five hours sleep a night. But still, I would pull up in that graveyard and, you know, five in the morning, you know, engine running, coffee in my hand, no sleep. And I would write a paragraph. You know, I'd write for about like 17 minutes. I'd go to the job, whether it was carpentry, teaching or both. On the way back, I'd go to the graveyard again. I'd write another 17, 18 minutes. And I did that for three years. And after three years, I had 22 notebooks filled at beginning, middle, and end. So um, at the height of my our, our young, struggling family life, I was able to write, you know, an entire novel. And, and I think anyone can do it. You don't need all day. Yeah. Now, that said, I'm glad those years have come and gone. They were <laughs> joyous in, in an exhausting way. But now I've got a great schedule. You know, I only teach twice a week, even on those days I write, because I teach in the afternoon. So I get down to my cave. I have a soundproof room in my basement. I uh, bring my coffee. I shut the door. <laughs> it's a cave. It's a, it's five feet wide, 11 feet long, six-foot ceiling. I cover the one window with a blanket. Huh. Um, I, I, I'm, I work at a wooden desk facing a blank wall. I write longhand pencil and notebooks. But I begin by reading poetry, which yeah, I've been doing for many, many, many years. Um, I, I'm a huge uh, consumer of poetry, and I read two to three, four poems just to get me into a state. And frankly, it's inspiring. And, and then I start writing. And when I'm composing from scratch, I will write for no more than two, two and a half hours. I'm shot after that. I'm done. There's no, there's no concentration left. I'll go work out, clear my head, and then go you know, juggle all the things that need doing, you know, to pay the bills, to be a husband, a father, a friend, a son, a brother, etc. And um, in the morning, next morning, I go back and I do it again. Um, but, you know, I type the previous day's handwriting into a into the computer, push it aside, and, and continue to write longhand. You know, you don't need to write all day. You know, it's, it's a mm -hmm. rare writer who can, you know. Um, you know, Larry McMurtry one of our most prolific novelists, 90 minutes a day, but every day, 90 minutes. Graham Greene, who wrote, what, 40-plus novels, two hours every morning on the French Riviera. <laughs> I don't know how he got any writing done on the French Riviera, but he did, <laughs> two hours every morning. So what are some book or books that you reread over and over again to, to get into, x-ray read it, to get into the bones of it? One of my favorite uh, 
contemporary novels is Ironweed by William Kennedy. Have you read that one? No. It's a beautiful one. It won yeah. a Pulitzer Prize, I think, in 85 or 86. It's just stunningly put together. Uh, another one, and, you know, he was a young writer. And have you read the stories of Breeze DJ Pancake? No. Oh, so man. He's, he's You're giving me a reading list. Yeah, man. Pancake. Uh, there was a, a reissue, I think, Back Bay Books did. I actually wrote the new afterword for that one. Um, he, somebody gave me, a, a good writer friend gave me a copy of his story, Trilobites. Pancake died, killed himself when he was 26 or 27 years old. He left behind these short stories. His mother sent him around, a lot like the John Kennedy O'Toole story, and they got published. And then guess what? They were finalists of Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. He was a beautiful, gifted writer. He wrote so deeply and honestly about what he knew, which was the coal mining uh, haulers he grew up in West Virginia. And, and so I reread that book a few times just for the, just for the honest voice and vision. And um, read, read his story, Trilobites. Yeah. Another one, uh, I, I, I'm a big Dr. O fan. Um, I reread a lot of his stuff. Uh, lately, I've read The March a couple of times. But the one that I go back to, you know what I go back to a lot, is Hemingway short stories. And I reread them many times, and it's, it, again, the economy and the containment and the restraint. It was really something. And um, I think I've read The Sun Also Rises six times. And who else? I'm a I, big, yeah, there's so much great writing right now. I have to say, probably my, my favorite living American writer right now is Elizabeth Strout. I can't get over the quality of her prose. If you have not read My Name is Lucy Barton, talk about restraint and, and trusting the reader to, to get the, 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 the blank spaces. That is one of the most psychically naked books I've ever read. It's stunning. Um, and of course there are more that I'm not thinking of. Yeah. I, I, there, there's such great writing out there. And by the way, I don't understand writers who get discouraged when they read great writing or competitive or envious. I feel nothing but gratitude. <laughs> I just feel grateful somebody pulled it off. Oh my God, now I want to try to. That's incredible. Yeah, I wanted to like ask you about, you know, sometimes there's an inherent jealousy among artists and uh, you just, I think you said the one thing that you, is the force field against that feeling is not to be competitive or jealous, but to approach it with that sense of gratitude and wonder and, and yeah. positivity, right? I've had fallen human moments where, you know, I've seen a writer elevated who who I didn't think deserved the elevation, say. Um, so I've had those bitter moments of, oh, man, <laughs> that guy, he's not even that good. Are you kidding me? But, um, you know, I try to – George Garrett has a great line. He said, all that all – that, all that, all that crap that writers are guilty of sometimes of envy or – jealousy or greed he said try to contend with all of that in the head but don't let it get into the heart mm. i think that's profoundly wise advice but the truth is it's a rare moment for me um to feel those things i'm not you know i've got other human flaws but the truth is it's hard to write a book really hard and and i trust that everyone's doing the best they know how and and when someone really pulls it off artistically, I just feel joy. One of again, you know, one of the great successes in publishing the last few years have been uh, is Anthony Doerr's "All the Light We Cannot See." Have you read that? It's uh, it's on the shelf. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Brendan, that is a friggin' masterpiece. Mm -hmm. it took him Eleven years to write too. Eleven yep. years, 
it deserves every accolade and success it's getting and more. I felt nothing but joy uh, seeing that because it was one of the books that just made me glad to be alive and have eyesight and a reading habit, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, lastly, before I let you get out of here, Andre, um, you know, you had written in, in Townie that um, writing had given me me. And um, mm. and uh, I wonder if you could just maybe like speak to that and, and what that means for someone who might be, you know, we kind of alluded to being uh, outcome driven and, and all that stuff. And I think that sentence there kind of grounds writing of what it what it should and could be for a lot of people yeah. if they just well, kind of got the book out of their head and just did the work. Yeah, thank you, Brendan, for that question, because it, it's a profoundly important one. Um, look, I think someone is profoundly fortunate if they find early in their lives, or in, in, in his or her life, as I did in mine, that thing that makes him or her themselves. For me, uh, when I discovered writing at age 22, creative writing, I felt like me for the first time. So, okay, here I, oh, here I am. Mm. You know, I give a lot of convincing speeches, and I find I keep saying the same thing, which is, look, I don't, I don't wish success on you guys. I don't want you to go out there and be a winner. I want you to go out there and be joyous and grow, because that's the only way you're going to be joyous is to grow. And how are you going to grow? To do that thing or those things that when you do them, you're more you than when you do not. Joseph Campbell wrote about that beautifully when he talked about following the bliss and all that. Um, in the power and the myth. Um, look, what is we live in this culture that prizes, uh, that celebrates, you know, famous writers and actors and directors, and you know, they they give you a lot of attention and love once you've had success. But it's not a culture that helps you uh, grow as a writer until you've had it. In fact, they belittle it. Uh, you know, we you know, families love their kids. But I can't tell you how many, you know, I, I work with a 90-year-old woman and she started writing, she couldn't start writing until her parents died because they didn't want her to suffer in, you know, in, in the writing life. Here's my point. Um, too often, what is keeping people from doing it and rushing it and wanting that success is they're trying to please others. Too often, I think, we make daily choices because we're imagining that family gathering in the future three years from now where I get to say, well, I'm doing this and I've done that to some aunt you hardly even know. And the truth is our lives are short. We live a hundred years. It ain't long enough. And you're only given one. So if you are fortunate enough to have found, say, creative writing, and you know that you're not going to be you if you don't get in those daily words, then that's all you need to know. You need to do that or you're going to die before you're dead. And, 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 and by the way, let's just talk about that desire to, to give to the culture. Jean Reese has a beautiful image. We can end with this, Jean Reese. She said, you know, and, and look, I'm not pooing the desire to publish. I think it's a beautiful uh, desire. It, it means you want to be part of the conversation. But Jean Reese said it so much more beautifully in this image. She said, look, she said, if, 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 if culture is a big ocean, and, and then there are great rivers that flow into it like Mozart and Shakespeare and Claude Monet. She said, but they're also my five novels which are, it, it's, a, it's a trickle of a stream, but they go into the same ocean. And I think that's, that's really such a beautiful image because it's, it's really what's behind, you know, the secondary pleasure of writing, which is wanting to have people read it. We just want to be part of the cultural conversation. And that's a beautiful impulse. But it ain't ever going to happen if you got one eye in the mirror to see how you're doing. You must embrace the fact you will not be on the planet forever. May everybody live 140 years. But... <laughs> You know, and you must 
get in the words. Just show up. Oh, thank you so much, Andre, for carving out time your morning here uh, to talk shop. My pleasure. Yeah. So, hey, safe travels, and uh, we'll be in touch down the road. Thank you so much again. All right, man. I really enjoyed your questions, and uh, let's have a beer sometime. You're back east. Fantastic. We'll do it. All right. <laughs> Take, Take care. Take care. Oh, yeah, we did it. Another paperback edition of the show. Hey, I deleted my Twitter account. So I only hang out on Instagram and threads at Creative Nonfiction Podcast. Consider visiting patreon.com slash cnfpod to join the community of writers there. It's interactive. And of course, subscribe to this podcast if you don't already. And the show, it only grows if you, the listener, talks it up to your own network. So if you dig it, share it. And remember, stay wild, CNFers. And if you can do, interview. See ya. See ya.